everybody online is, I see his lips moving, but don't hear anything. Got to remember these things. So it's good to see you. We are continuing in our series in Matthew. We are nearing, well, we are on the home stretch, the final week of Jesus' life, where Matthew spends over a quarter of his time in this final week as Jesus comes into Jerusalem and approaches the cross. And uh, so as Easter arrives, we will be concluding Matthew in the Easter season. And this morning, we're finishing off this section in Matthew that has probably caused some of us to pause at moments and think very hard about what Jesus is saying. Because in Matthew 21 to 25, as I've mentioned in the past, we've seen a shift in his tone in these four chapters. As he enters into Jerusalem for this last time, there is an increased urgency in the teaching of Jesus and in his actions. Jesus turning over tables in the temple. Jesus confronting the Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus speaking of the coming tribulation in the future of the disciples and the church and the final day of judgment and speaking in the most striking terms to his disciples. Be watchful, be faithful, be prepared, as we saw last week. And these four chapters of Jesus' teaching are as much the real Jesus as the rest of the gospel. And so we can't dismiss his words, but we have to listen most carefully as he approaches the cross. His last words are perhaps his most urgent and important words. And so we find here at the end of chapter 25 now, that Jesus is no longer talking about the signs of his return, and he's not talking about being ready for his return in the future. At the end of chapter 25, he is now talking about the event of his return. Jesus is now talking about the final day of judgment. It's not signs, it's not it's coming, it's not be ready, it's now, it's here, and this is what it's going to be. He speaks of the great day of judgment in verses 31 to 46 of Matthew 25, and you may want to turn there or tap there on your phone to be able to follow along. And in this text, there are at least three, there's many more than three, but there's at least three important things that we need to learn from his description of this event. And I mean, if there's going to be a test, if there's going to be a judgment, we want to know how to pass it, right? And so Jesus is going to actually tell his disciples This is how you pass the test. This is the judgment that is to come. You're not going to be surprised by it. And as we unpack these verses, there's three main points. One, there will be a judgment. It is not optional. Two, this judgment will not be on your terms. And three, where we'll spend most of our time, it will be a test of your generosity, not your religiosity. It will be a test of your charitableness, not a test of your churchiness. And that will surprise a lot of people, maybe even a lot of people who think they are very, very faithful Christians. So let's just pray, and then we'll dig right into the text, because there's a lot to look at this morning, and it will challenge our hearts. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have your Holy Spirit, which opens up our blind eyes, that it opens up the eyes of our heart to be able to see We thank you that we have your scripture that we can hold up as a mirror to our lives. Let this word that you have for us today be a test in our own individual lives, everyone who is listening, but also a test of us as a church to continue to shape and to mold us in the direction that you would have us go so that we would be a church that reflects your heart. We would be a church that's equipping people for this final judgment. 
and equipping people to pass it in the test of their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 25, 31 to 46, and we'll sort of take it in sections. Again, he's speaking now to his disciples. They've asked him, what are the signs of the times to come? And he's given them those signs. He says, what is going to be the signs of the day of your return? And he's given them those signs. And he's told them to be watchful and to be faithful and to be prepared. And then he's told the parable of the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids. And those five were prepared and five won't. Then he told the parable of the talents and the servants who some used the talents to be prepared and some weren't. Now he's saying it's not about being prepared. This is it. This is the event. He says in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left. So let's just pause there and see what these first few verses tell us right away. He calls himself the Son of Man. It's Jesus' favorite title for himself. So Jesus is talking about himself here. He is coming. And when he comes in his glory, this is what you were asking about, disciples. Here it is. Jesus is going to come and he's going to take his place on the throne. Jesus has full authority given to him by the Father. He's the king. There's no question about that here. He's the son of man. He's coming in his glory, and he is sitting on the throne. He's the king. Get used to it. And he's coming. He's going to gather in all the nations. Everyone, without exception, will face Jesus. It won't matter what nation or what family or what era that you grew up in. You will face Jesus. And it's not voluntary. The nations are not coming to Jesus on his throne. He is gathering the nations to his throne. This judgment is happening whether you appreciate it or not. And then that, that judgment, as we continue to read, at the judgment at the throne, they will be separated. There will be a division. Not everyone passes the test. Not everyone gets in. And that's going to be a shock to a lot of people. In our very pluralistic, in our very synchronistic society, it is hard for people to hear that we are not all children of God in a saving sense. We do not all have God as our Father. Jesus says plainly to the Pharisees at one point in John chapter 8, your Father is the devil. That's pretty clear. The Pharisees' Father was not the Father that they thought he was. They thought their Father was Abraham. They thought their Father was God the Father. And Jesus says to them, no, you're mistaken. Your Father is actually the devil. There's going to be a separation. There's going to be a division and there are only two options for this division, for this separation. On the one hand, on the right hand, you have the sheep. And we've heard Jesus talk about his sheep a great deal through the Gospels and how he is the good shepherd. This could bring John chapter 10 to mind, and you're going to look at that in your life groups. Jesus knows his sheep, and they know him. Jesus says he lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes the sheep from Jesus' hands. The, the sheep are provided for. They're cared for. They're given life. Those are his sheep. And so as they come to the judgment of the throne, they will be recognized as 
Jesus as sheep and placed on the right hand. On the other hand, you have the goats. And it's not the greatest of all time goats. It's the goats that are not sheep. They might look sort of like sheep at first glance. They might have even convinced themselves that they're sheep. They're kind of white. They're furry. Four legs, long face. I'm a sheep. No, you're a goat. Goats are not sheep. And at this point, just three or four sentences into his proclamation, most people are deeply offended already. Because there is a judgment. It's coming. It's not optional. It's not on your terms. And there's only two categories. There is no other category. There is no third option. People say, I want to be a horse. No, sheep or goat. I don't accept those categories. Tough. It's sheep or goats. Well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. No, it's true for everyone, sheep or goat. And this is offensive to our post-enlightenment, post-modern culture today. It cuts against the grain. The grain of our culture says, I'll define my own categories. I'll decide what my identity is. I will judge myself. And when you compare that post-modern, post-enlightenment thinking to the truth of what we are going to face and how false it is in light of Christ on his throne, you can see what a disaster the false belief of postmodernism is. And the disaster that that will create on the day of our judgment, so many will be shocked and dismayed that they are not, after all, the final arbiters of truth and righteousness. And so if there's any vestige of that cultural fantasy that lingers in your heart and mind, then be disabused of that. That illusion will be torn away the moment we see Jesus on his throne. He's the arbiter of righteousness. He will separate the sheep from the goats. You cannot decide any other category, and you have already decided Jesus speaks this in crystal clear contrast. Sheep or goat, right hand or left hand, blessed or cursed, come to me or depart from me, kingdom or fire, life or damnation, heaven or hell. Jesus makes this point clear, and you need to hear that loud and clear and apply it to your life. Are you ready for this judgment? Do you realize that this life is the only life in which you have the opportunity to either enter the kingdom or to reject it? And what are you doing right now? Not what did you do 20 years ago. What are you doing right now this week? Are you in actively accepting and entering the kingdom? Or are you rejecting the kingdom? Notice that Jesus doesn't make these people a sheep or a goat on that testing day. You've already decided whether you are a sheep or a goat. Jesus is simply separating the two. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in the Son of God is condemned already. The judgment has already been decided how you are a sheep or a goat. Jesus isn't making people sheeps and goats. He's simply judging and discerning which they are. So he places the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. You decide your category. Jesus at this point is simply sorting them out. Those are the first two points. There is a judgment, you will not avoid it, and it won't be on your terms. So if that is true, if that's what we open up with here, and trust me, I'm trying really hard to make this an encouraging message. (laughs) It's always encouraging if you study it 
long enough. If that is true, if Jesus is accepting sheep and rejecting goats, what we really need to know then is how are we recognized as sheep? And it's interesting because that's exactly where this text spends most of its time. Jesus spends most of his time in describing the final judgment, in describing how he will recognize his sheep and how he will separate the nations. And the answer is perhaps as surprising as it is simple. It says in verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Man, it'd be fun to talk about that for half an hour, too. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous, notice that description, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So Jesus says here, I recognize my sheep When I look across all the nations gathered, remember, this is what's happening. All the nations of the world are gathered, billions of people. And Jesus says, I recognize my sheep because when I look across all these people gathered together, my sheep are the ones who have lived their lives supplying generously to those who are experiencing poverty and joining in those who are struggling in captivity. Those are my sheep. And it's surprising, perhaps, at this point in the text to realize what the marks of the righteous are not, what Jesus doesn't recognize his sheep by. The marks of the faithful sheep are not church attendance or Bible knowledge or leading a small group or even daily prayer time for the lost. The marks of the faithful is not grand displays of religious activity or even leading squeaky clean religious lives. Jesus doesn't recognize his sheep by most of the ways in which we think we would recognize other Christians. Most of the ways we think we recognize a good Christian is, well, they go to church, they are journaling, they're praying every day, they're witnessing to people, they're leading a small group, they're teaching in Sunday school, they're on the music team, there's a good Christian. Notice Jesus says nothing about any of that here. Jesus recognizes his sheep with how they will respond to those trapped in poverty and captivity. That's the test of his sheep. So how does Jesus say we meet people in their poverty? He gives examples. He says, I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. Or you could say a refugee or a foreigner. I wasn't part of the group. I was naked. This is how he describes his poverty. How does Jesus say that we meet people in their captivity? He says, I was sick and you visited me. I was imprisoned and you came. Jesus speaks here exclusively in categories of mercy. And we need to wake up to this as individual Christians and as a whole church. The marks of faithful Christ followers that Jesus is looking for is mercy. Generous mercy towards those who lack. They either lack 
in a sense of poverty or they lack in a sense of freedom. So let's remember Jesus' own description of his ministry, of why he came. In Luke 4, verse 18 to 19, Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he opens up the scripture of Isaiah. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Look, at, look how Jesus describes his ministry. I am here for the poor and the captives. I am here for those who are in poverty and who are imprisoned. Poverty and captivity are his categories, not mine. He starts his earthly ministry saying that's who he came for. And on the last day of judgment, he's going to judge his sheep on the same two categories. How did you deal with poverty around you? And how did you deal with people in captivity and imprisonment and in bondage? And the examples that he uses, the categories that he uses here in this text, indicate the breadth of the kinds of poverty and captivity we can encounter. Because we think, well, maybe there's not a whole bunch of, there's not a lot of homeless people in Halliburton. There's not a lot of desperately poor people. We don't have a prison nearby for me to visit people. Broaden your categories. Jesus gives broad categories here for us to think of. Yes, some people need food or drink because there's a poverty of supply. But others don't need food as much as they need a relationship. They're refugees, they're strangers, they're foreigners, they're not part of the group. Or they're just people without connections, they need a friend. Or they have a poverty of opportunity, they can't get a job because they don't know anybody like you know people. You probably know enough people, you could find a job for your nephew or your daughter or your son because you know somebody who owns a business and so you can say, hey, put in a good word for my cousin and get a job in there. There are people out there with no connections, no opportunity. They have no job prospects. They have no friendships. They have no social circle. They have no security net. There is nobody who is going to bring over a generator if their electricity goes out. They have a poverty in that regard. How many times have you heard people say that they feel empty or bankrupt or drained or alone? That's poverty. The scriptures recognize that poverty is as much a social issue of marginalization as it is a financial issue. Proverbs 19.4 says, wealth attracts many friends, but even the closest friend of the poor person deserts them. So Jesus says, I was naked, I was thirsty, I was a stranger, and you came to me. You met me in my lack, and there is a poverty around us, even if it's not an obvious poverty of finances. And people get trapped in the margins, and they feel vulnerable because they don't have these connections, and they don't have these opportunities, and they are worn down by that poverty. Let's look at categories of imprisonment. Others are trapped and imprisoned in many different ways. In some cases, people are literally in prison and they need to be visited and ministered to. But Jesus says that sickness is a kind of prison that people need to be visited in. We just talked about Stacy in hospital and not being able to be visited. You can be in sickness literally in a hospital. 
imprisoned in your sickness. You can be imprisoned by sickness in terms of how it restricts your movement. It restricts your opportunity. It restricts your ability to serve. It restricts your life. You are imprisoned by whatever sickness is wearying you. Sometimes we're imprisoned by grief or we are imprisoned by depression. Some people are imprisoned in their homes by abuse. Some people are imprisoned in depression and despair. Some people are held captive by lies in their life that they believe, and they are in prisons of lies that they have been told their whole life. Or they are imprisoned by the lies that our social media culture tells them. Ask any teenage girl if she doesn't feel trapped by the identity that she feels she has to live up to. Ask any young man if he doesn't feel trapped by the expectations of the culture around him. There are many ways in which we can encounter poverty. There are many ways in which we can be imprisoned or chained. Some people are imprisoned by their sin. How many times have you heard people say that they feel trapped or they feel stuck? That's a sign of imprisonment. Some are imprisoned and impoverished by acts of injustice against them, and all of those things could come from that. Proverbs 13.23 says, A poor man's field may produce abundant food, but injustice sweeps it away. A lot of people are poor, a lot of people are trapped, not because they want to be or because they're lazy, but because they've never had the opportunity due to injustice to hold on to what it is that they've produced or to live in the life that they want to because someone has taken it from them, someone has swept it away, It's been stacked against them from the beginning. God's passion for the poor is evident, not just in the New Testament, but all through the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 15, 7 to 8 says, If there is a poor man among you, among your brothers, in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Notice God says, too, whatever he needs. What does he need? Might need food, might need a drink, might need a job, might just need a friend, might need someone to give him some wisdom, to encourage him. Whatever he needs, don't be tight-fisted towards him. It'd be a mistake to limit our categories of poverty and captivity to simple financial needs or imprisonment. There are many ways in which God has made us rich in order to meet many forms of poverty and captivity. It was in my Bible reading this week, actually, in the McShane Bible reading plan, 2 Corinthians 9-11. You might have seen it. I posted about it on Facebook. just happened to be in my plan a few days ago. Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. See, Paul doesn't just say you're going to be rich with a big bank account so you can write checks. You may be made rich in ways you don't even realize. You're rich because you have a wealth of friendships. You have a wealth of health. You have a, a, an abundance of ability. You have an abundance of joy. You have an abundance of wisdom. You have an abundance of compassion. You have an abundance of social status, in spare time, in energy. Wherever it is, in every way that God has made you specifically rich, He's made you rich so you can share that, so you can share your social connections, so that you can be generous with your time and your energy, so that you can be generous in your wisdom and in your compassion. God has made us rich in every way so that we can be generous in every way. So back to our text then and the judgment words of Jesus. What have we learned? 
Christians will not be judged on attending Bible studies with our middle-class friends. We will not be judged on church attendance or music team participation. We won't be judged on Bible memorization or even a test of our theology and doctrine. We won't be judged on how many times we shared the gospel, although we may be judged on how we shared the gospel. Now, does that mean that those are bad things? Paul just pulled the rug out from underneath his entire career. Everybody's going to stay away from church and not do any ministry. No, that's not, the, <laughs> that's not the point. Those are important things for equipping and training. They are commands that we have been given in order to cultivate God-exalting Christ-likeness in the church. We absolutely should be doing those things, but those things are not an end in themselves. We don't go to university simply to get a graduate into graduate studies. We don't take graduate studies simply to get a PhD. We don't get a PhD simply to start over again studying in a different field. Now, I know some people who have done that. You know, I went to university with like 45-year-olds that had been there since they were 18. Maybe it was the student debt. They just figured if I just stay in university my whole life, I never have to pay back my student debt. Smart, smart. But some Christians are like that. Study, 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 but never apply. Equip, 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 and never practice. It's so comfortable just to stay on campus and never enter the real workforce of the Christian life. But this is just the campus. There's real work that we are training and equipping for. Paul says this, actually, back in 2 Corinthians 8 again, as he encourages his Corinthian friends in their generosity. He says, but as you excel in everything, and then he gives a list of some churchy stuff, He says, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you. So in other words, as you're getting trained and equipped and you're building up your faith and you're learning all these things, as you excel in those things, he says, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So Paul says to the church in Corinth, he says, go and excel in all that churchy stuff, but make sure you also excel in generosity and mercy as well, because that's what it's for. God actually says that if you're not excelling in mercy, then he actually hates all of our churchy stuff. In Amos 5, 21 to 24, this is God speaking through his prophet. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. God says, I don't want any of your church, people. Not because he didn't command us to do it, but because what he really wants is in verse 24. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's what God wants. You say, well, God, didn't you command us to do all this church stuff? Yeah, God did command us to do all that church stuff, but it doesn't matter if it doesn't result in mercy. There's no star for you at the end on your sheet. All those church activities are good, but they're supposed to equip us and train us for something beyond them. Otherwise, God will actually despise them. Remember, goats look like sheep, but they're not sheep. If you're studying your Bible and you're attending your life group and you're coming to church and praying daily and signing up for training, fully engaged in that Christian life, but you don't use what you're learning and apply it to the people that are the most vulnerable around you, then you're just a highly trained surgeon who's never saved anyone's life. 
You're a skilled carpenter who's never built anyone a house. You're a competent lifeguard who's never rescued a drowning swimmer. You've never entered a hospital, never swung a hammer, never even entered the pool. But you got all the training. And Jesus has a category for those people. Goat. Verse 41, he says, Then I will say to those on his left, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Just notice there, contrary to TV and comic books, Satan doesn't actually run hell. Satan is punished in hell. Disabuse yourself of that notion, too. It says, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of these, the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In other words, Jesus says you could get to the end of your life facing the judgment of Jesus and hear him say, you never treated anyone when they were sick, and yet you said you were a doctor. You never built anyone a house, and yet you said you were a carpenter. You never rescued anyone who was drowning, and yet you claimed you were a lifeguard. You never really lived out the life you professed to say you had in you. Jonathan Edwards, one of the last and greatest American Puritan preachers, says it this way. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, This is a duty to which God's people are under very strict obligation. It is not merely a commendable thing for a man to be kind and bountiful to the poor, but our bounden duty, as much a duty as to pray or to attend public worship. And the neglect of it brings great guilt upon any person. What is just as or greater than going to church and life group and reading your Bible and praying? Actually caring for the impoverished and the imprisoned. James says it simply this way in James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And later on, you know James, who's the brother of Jesus, got this message because he says true religion is taking care of widows and orphans. That's the religion that pleases God. So if this is the test then, How are we doing getting ready for it? Because Jesus has given us here the test answers ahead of time. This is literally an open book test. And you know the book, right? Open the book. It prepares you for the test. What prominence and priority do acts of generous mercy have in your life? Are we counting on Jesus recognizing that we went to church 40 times this year? And how will that go? when he's not looking at church attendance, but he's really asking us if we reached out to 45 vulnerable people this year, that we really visited 45 people in whatever imprisonment they were in, that we really were generous where we were made rich with those that were poor. What if Jesus is not testing us on the things that we think he's testing us on, but on something entirely different? How are we doing as individuals and as a church How do we as a church continue to press in and to emphasize and to focus on mercy ministries as being the ministry that should characterize us as a people? 
Let me encourage you, the vulnerable and the marginalized are not far from you. Those imprisoned by grief or trapped in depression or chained by addiction are your brothers and sisters. Those who are experiencing a poverty of connection, who are feeling left out and marginalized, who are lonely, they are sitting right in this room now. They are listening right now online. And there's a community, more of them, a community full of them right outside of these doors. We can, you can lift up your eyes to those who are impoverished and in prison, and you can reach out to them. You can come alongside them. Out of the riches that God has given you, you can share with those who don't have what you do. In other words, you can sit down with someone who's depressed, and you can give to them your encouragement and your joy and your hope that you have in Christ Jesus. You can sit down with someone who is trapped in lies and indecision, maybe trapped by bad decisions of the past or trapped in the darkness of ignorance, and you can give to them out of your wealth of wisdom that you get from the word to say, here, let me speak into your life. Let me share my experience with you. Let me share what God says about this so that you can be set free from the trap that you're in. You can share your friendships with others to say, come into this social network. Don't feel like you are not part of the group, that you're somehow rejected. Join us in here so that you have the connections and the encouragement and the opportunities that we have. And you can share of your finances too. But you can meet people in their poverty and in their imprisonment if we open our eyes to the poverty and imprisonment that is out there. Jesus gives us all these categories of mercy and generosity. Paul says we're made rich in every way so that we can show mercy in every way. And here's the thing. When the final judgment day comes, that's what we're going to be judged on. We're going to be judged not on did you go to church 52 times a year, but did you reach the impoverished and the imprisoned 52 times a year? Are you reaching out to someone who is in need every week? the same way you read your Bible or go to your small group or go to church every week. Not that those things are bad. They are equipping us for the real test, the test of our mercy and our generosity and our compassion for those that are in need. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity in which you speak in these final days. You don't want anybody to be confused. There, nobody's going to get to the final judgment day and say, well, you never told me. Oh, you're telling us. You're telling us exactly like it is. And so, Father, I pray that as we consider our relationship with you, as we draw closer to you, as we treasure you, as we seek to be Christ-like, we would recognize that this is the very heart of God the Father. This is the very likeness of Christ. To overflow with mercy and compassion and generosity for those who are in poverty and for those who are imprisoned. Father, open our eyes to those in our own midst. You say it starts here with my brothers, right here in the church. Brothers and sisters, right here in the family of God. The poor is with us. The imprisoned are with us. We can meet them. And it flows from that heart of generosity out to the whole world. That they can see our love, know that we are Christians by our love. Father, I just pray that you would stir our hearts in this direction. Wake us up to the reality of the judgment that's coming and to how you will separate and how you will know your sheep. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.